to a new episode of On Translation. Our episode today is entitled Metaphors Translators Live By. We thought maybe we can get into a little bit of cognitive aspects of translation today. Uh, it's been a while, Joseph. Yeah, it's good to good to see you and talk to you again, Mohammed, and to talk some more about translation. And I think it's nice that we're really going to talk about the way people talk about translation and, and what that does and the way we conceive of it and think about it and maybe value it or don't value it. Yeah, cognitive aspects of the translation process have become a rather active research area in recent years. We are going to delve slightly into one of these cognitive aspects, and that is the metaphors translators use when they talk about the act of translation or the process of translation. So have you ever noticed that translators don't seem able to talk about their act or their profession without evoking some type of metaphor? Yeah, it's very interesting, right? And I think a lot of studies really focus in on these metaphors. And when translators themselves are asked about what they do, they almost automatically come up with some kind of metaphor. And I wonder if that suggests something about the way we think about translation, that we maybe we want to think of it as a type of a craft or a skill, but this failure to really be able to define it or give it a set of rules and only talk about it poetically suggests something maybe that we should think about translation differently. So first, a brief introduction. Our title, Metaphors Translators Live By, is an allusion to a famous 1980 book, Metaphors We Live By, by George Lakoff and Mark Johnson. It's a slim but very influential book that popularized the conceptual metaphor theory and established the importance of metaphors as our principal vehicle for understanding and making sense of reality. If I may summarize the basic argument, the mind is not a debating hall. It's an art gallery. We like <laughs> to see things in terms of other things. <laughs> nice metaphorical use. <laughs> <laughs> no, you cannot escape metaphors once you read uh, this book. But of course, they are not talking about common old garden metaphors or regular metaphors. They are talking about a specific species of metaphors, what they call conceptual metaphors. Yeah, well, I happen to uh, read that book, even though, uh, you know, I can't really approach it in the way someone like you who understands linguistics. I approached it really as someone who came from a training in history and, and classics. And I have to say, I found it really fascinating. And it really made me think about the way I think and view the world and how it gets framed in ways I hadn't, right, was not conscious of, really. Metaphors We Live By is as much a book of philosophy as it is a book of linguistics or cognitive linguistics. It's pretty interdisciplinary. I thought we, before we can get into some of the common metaphors used by modern translators, uh, you could perhaps point out the similarity between the etymological origin of metaphor and translation and also talk about some of the classical tropes that have been used to talk about translation. Right. Well, one of the things that's interesting, and I'm sure as, as some people know, right, that metaphor is the Greek root from metaphering, and transfere, which where we get the word translatio and translation from, is really a calc of metaphor. So meta would translate to trans, really identical in meaning, and then, of course, you have the verbal root ferein, or fere in Latin, which really are identical. So translation and metaphor between Latin and Greek, are similar words, but in fact, they wouldn't be used uh, in the same sense. And in fact, what's interesting in the act of translation, when you look at ancient Greek texts or Latin texts, they wouldn't even use these words, really, for the act translation. They tend to use, uh, for example, in Greek, uh, one common way is hermeneo, where we get hermeneutics from when we think of the act of interpretation. And so what's interesting is uh, there's a way in which 
they conceptualize translation maybe not as a separate activity from expressing the meaning of someone else. The Roman sphere, the Latin, uh, often the way they talk about translation, again, is with verbs such as verto, to turn something, or to redo, which is like really to give something back. And so they often actually didn't even think in terms uh, the way we do, even though we use terms like translation metaphor as this kind of moving something from one to another. I think this idea of translation is this very distinct separate act from other types of literary production is something that really emerged later. Let me explain the basic idea. Unlike regular metaphors, when you say, I wandered only like a cloud or she walks in beauty. Or the brain is like an art gallery. These are one-off metaphors and very self-conscious. Conceptual metaphors, on the other hand, are supposed to be more regenerative, more reproductive. They appear to be cognitively and perceptually based. So metaphors such as ideas are food. We don't necessarily mention these phrases, ideas are food, but we, when we talk about ideas, we swallow ideas, we find them half-baked. I cannot stomach this idea, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> we talk about ideas as food. Yeah. Uh, the same applies to arguments. You know, we defend arguments, we attack arguments, and so on. That's that's a basic argument. We are not aware when we use these metaphors, yet they are metaphors. They are embedded. They are like a running theme in how we make sense of our reality. Of course, other famous ones is time is money. We save time. We squander time. We invest time. And when you said they these are regenerative and productive, what exactly do you mean by that? They exist in so many different forms in our language. I see. It's not just my love is like a red, red rose, <laughs> right? And it That's ends. newly sprung in June. Right. And how does this inform the way we talk about translation or the way translators talk about translation? One insight I have is when you read interviews with different translators, you all try to use different metaphors. Some of them are pretty unique metaphors, but sometimes, or most of the time, If you dig deeper, you find that they are still relying on old conceptual metaphors that conceptualize translation as a simple act of transfer or even an act of treachery. So I will try, with your help, (laughs) to prove that that actually happens. All right, then you're in trouble. uh, There is a a running interview series in online magazine, Words Without Borders, and I think one of the staple (laughs) questions is, do you have a favorite metaphor? that you use to talk about translation. I think they have collected more than 30 of them in one article. So we are relying on some of these metaphors here in our discussion. So one translator, he says, translation is like transporting a group of people across a river. Obviously a physical metaphor, right? It's spatial in the way we might even think, again, at the root of transfere, right? Which is really, really get the word for ferry from, to move somebody across. But it's interesting to think, well, which people is he carrying across into where? That is, are you taking the reader over to the side of the original? Or are you trying to bring the original author over into the reader's home country? Right, And this goes back to older discussions of translation, whether you're trying to take an original over to an audience or bring an audience over to the original. And I'm not sure if that's a good way of thinking about it, but uh, that quote is certainly working within that tradition. Yeah, it's basically invoking the etymological origin of the, of yeah, the word translation. Exactly. 
There is also the classical trope of translation as imitation. You, I, I find that embedded in a lot of metaphors that uh, modern translators try to conjure up. So, for example, I see translation more as mimicry, doing as good an impression as possible of the original work in a different language. Mimicry is interesting because another way of thinking about it, a similar metaphor, is aping something which doesn't necessarily have a, a positive connotations. So mimicry... The ideal of it is to act exactly like the original. It suggests, perhaps, that there's no real creativity coming from the translator themselves. That might, without meaning to, demean the act of translations. But it's surprisingly this metaphor of translation as an act of mimicry or an act of imitation is pretty common. So I'm going to read a couple more metaphors invoked by other translators. Translation is like reproductive printmaking. You have an original, and your task is to reproduce it. Another one, my translation becomes a recreation that reflects the original, just as the sea can reflect the sky. That sounds a little better, but I think you know all of these, to me, are a little uh, disturbing. And if we go back to one of the first discussions of translation is the creation of the Septuagint, Greek translation uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures. And the story uh, that we have about that from a letter that's probably a forgery, but still very ancient, is that these you know, 70 translators were sent in isolation. They each produced a translation, and lo and behold, the miracle is, is that all their translations were identical. And the way it gets described, though, how that happened is that they all were possessed by the spirit of Moses. In some versions, it's if Moses whispered in their ears. But this is kind of the extreme of mimicry that is... They really became like Moses, like the spirit of Moses inhabited them. And so they didn't even need to mimic because they became that other person. And but I think we're talking about two different metaphors here. The act of mimicry is one. The spiritual channel or medium is another one. Or do you see them as equivalent? No, they're certainly not equivalent. But So my point was going to be with the idea of the spirit is that at least as a medium, there's some kind of meaning that you are channeling yourself and you have a part in, whereas these other metaphors seem to make it very much like a physical reproduction, like you would be just copying a text by hand with the same physical letters. But you know, the idea of channeling a medium is very much uh, alive and well in, the, in some of the metaphors that modern translators invoke. Take, for example, a translator is a medium, actually one of the translators say that, or our job is to channel our author. Or the translator is a ghost who belongs to two worlds. So the notion of ghosting, spirit, channeling, medium is very much, I would argue, it's an embedded metaphor that we are not necessarily aware of. Yes, all these metaphors that translators coin or come up with, they are very self-conscious, but they are relying on an old trope. An embedded conceptual metaphor. Yeah, and I think maybe the really deeply embedded metaphor that both the ones you spoke about earlier in terms of, say, mimicry and painting, reproductive printmaking, it's interesting to me that those all suggest the body of the text, whereas right. these others with the spirit, the ghost, and the medium talk about the spirit. And this is kind of the fundamental trope. The duality. Uh, yeah, underlying all translation is that ideally body and spirit would end up being somehow identical. And this actually is what in the miracle of the Septuagint happened. But it's it's funny that these tropes kind of diverge and focus on one or the other of those 
without really addressing that duality at the heart of uh, translation metaphors. There is another uh, group of metaphors that don't fall into the same classical tropes at what I would like to call performative metaphors or metaphors that emphasize the act of translation as staging cultural difference or a performative act. And I have a couple of them here and I'd like to... uh, Get your reactions for them. This is one translator talking, Bill uh, Johnston. I find that I am looking for the voice of the author or narrator much as an actor searches for a character within him or herself. Uh, Another person talking about a translator conducting an orchestra of words. Or uh, when we translate, our performances, our reading and writing, and our stage is a page. So what do you see in common in, well, in all of these metaphors? I think these are interesting, and in, in what sets them apart from the other two groups that you first raised is that these really focus on the translator creating something new. It's an artistic endeavor and in some ways likens them to an original artist. Now, they may be using another person's score or another person's script, But in fact, what they're doing is finding, and I thought the one with the actor was nice, was finding within themselves this character, that focusing on this creative process that happens within the translator. So it's not just an act of creating a physical likeness or mimicking or bare imitation, but in fact, it is a full-blown creative process that one could say is much closer to the act of what we would call writing an original or creating an original piece of art. Plato talked about translation as performative, right? (laughs) Yeah, in a way, in fact, I think you're referring to Plato's dialogue, The Ion, which is not really about translation, but I think there's a way in which we should read it as being about translation. It's really about a rhapsode, a performer who would, it's often translated as recite Homer, What Ion does as a rhapsode is he goes to festivals and performs Homer, which is a better word than recite. In fact, what he most likely did was compose in performance. So he didn't just have a Homeric script that he then gave a dramatic reading of or recitation of, but he didn't just completely create something new. He was working within an established set of poetic stories, which had the characters like Achilles or Odysseus. It even had certain formulas like rosy-fingered Dawn or Achilles is always swift-footed. But you use this in a way maybe like a musical score that maybe gives you just chords, but leaves the musician to come up with a melody. And the way Plato talks about it, or the way Plato has Socrates talk about it with Ion in this dialogue, Ion actually calls himself a hermeneos. As I mentioned earlier, this is a word used in Greek for translation, but it also just means, you might say, interpretation, and sometimes even just expressing something. And the metaphor that emerges from this dialogue and talking about what Ion does, because Ion can't quite explain what he does, and Socrates suggests to him, like, Well, it's clearly not a skill or a craft, much like we would say maybe mimicry is or or painting is, but it's this divine power. And the metaphor that's used there is a set of iron rings that are magnetized. And so the original inspiration in the ancient Greek terms, the muse, is the magnet. And then so first Homer, who from a traditional understanding translation would be the original text, first gets magnetized, really infused with the spirit. Then Ion is the next ring who gets magnetized. And so you have a chain rings, but they all become very much like the magnets themselves. And so Ion is just like Homer, that he's a ring that's been magnetized, 
but he just happens to be next to him and they share this power. And that gets transmitted, translated, we might say, eventually to the audience, who is the last ring in this cycle. To me, that's a nice way of talking about an activity that resides between our notions of translation and original. You can't even talk about it, that metaphor, in terms of translation and original. It might be a way of uh, getting beyond some of these problematic tropes. Very interesting. We critique uh, many of the metaphors that try to conceptualize translation as a simple act of transfer or channeling. We seem to like the performative metaphors. Is there a particular metaphor that you like? Well, you you know, I think <laughs> where I'm going to go with this is that I think perhaps our trouble with describing translation or being able really only to use these conscious metaphors suggests that maybe the category of translation is problematic itself, that we don't have the same problem when we talk about creative writing process. If we eliminated translation as really a subspecies of writing and actually not even elevated it to be the same thing, but got rid of that distinction between translation and creative writing, came up with a new word for it, hermeneo, then we might not, I think, tie ourselves into knots, to use a a metaphor, when we try to talk about it and also criticize and analyze the work of translators. You know, what is interesting, I mean, some commentators have brought up the same issue that you mentioned. Peter Allen, for example, talk about how odd it is that we have trouble appreciating the skill required to bring words from one language to life in another. And we don't seem to be able to talk about this activity without relying on a metaphor. But the interesting thing is translation itself, we use it as a super metaphor. It's one of the great metaphors. I mean, especially in cultural studies, you talk about pretty much everything as translation, migration, museum curation, and so on. This is kind of a paradox here. Translation and that concept was born as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for a particular kind of creative production, and it might not be a very good metaphor. Well, on this note, (laughs) we will end our episode today. Thanks for listening. Please visit us on translation.org. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care, Mohammed. Bye, Joseph. Follow On Translation on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or also visit ontranslation.org.